Welcome to the Amazing Leader Series. This is Karen Vallo, your Chief Joybringer and CEO of Evolution, where our purpose is bringing joy to the workplace. And I'm really thrilled to bring you my guest today. His name is Richard Sheridan, and he is actually someone who started his journey back in 2000 when he was fed up with how the world was at work, and he thought it could be a much better place and a much better workplace. And so his question was, you know, how can we create a workplace that has camaraderie, human energy, creativity, and productivity? Rich co-founded Menlo Innovations in 2001 with a really unique purpose to end human suffering in the workplace. What a great purpose that is. So they have a unique uh, approach to custom software creation. And it's really um, surprising that they've had thousands of people coming to the workplace just to see how they do it because he's focused in on joy, which is one of my favorite topics. So Richard also has, or we call him Rich, has also published two books. Uh, one is Joy Inc., How We Built a Workplace People Love. And then his second book came out um, a few years ago, Chief Joy Officer. So I'm super thrilled to get into this with Rich and find out how he's done this. So welcome, Rich. Thanks for having me, Karen. Excited about the conversation. Well, I'm excited to have you here and uh, basically to find out a little bit about, you know, your journey and what you've done and how you've done it, because um, I think you're doing some pretty amazing work and people are going to find out after we have had a chance to talk with you here. So tell me a little bit, you know, in terms of your journey and kind of how it got to how you got to where you are today. Well, I'm one of those fortunate few that knew what I was going to do when I was very young. I got involved with computers in uh, high school and fell in love with them and thought, man, this is going to be a cool profession. This was way back in the early 70s. 1971 is the first time I touched a computer. So obviously a very new field, but for whatever reason, even at that young age, I could see the frontier. I could, you know, you couldn't even see the horizon of the software industry. And I think that's still true to this day. And so uh, had a very early, great start, uh, got a couple of degrees in computer science, computer engineering, jumped out of college, just ready to tackle the world uh, in 1982. And I thought, wow, you know, here I am, I'm excited about a profession, I'm good at what I do, I'm well schooled now, and it's an industry that's about to take off. And I thought, what a great place to be. And quite frankly, it looked like that. You know, I had wonderful career rise. Uh, you know, anything the world measures is success I had. The trouble was there was this other line that started here in my heart and my heart was actually breaking for an industry that I thought would carry me for a lifetime. And by my mid thirties, I didn't even wanna be in the profession anymore. Uh, you know, the chaos of the software industry, the missed deadlines, the blown budgets, the unhappy everybody, team sponsors, customers, users. Uh, and I thought, I'm not sure I can do this for the rest of my life, most of my professional career. Uh, I looked ahead for 30 years and I thought, there's no way I can survive this. And so I was contemplating just getting out entirely. And uh, my inner optimist kicked in. Uh, I think one of, the, one of the many titles I carry with my team is chief optimist. I was stuck in a room full of manure and I was going to keep it because I knew there was a pony in here somewhere. Um, and so I started reading. I became a student again, but not books about technology. I, I really uh, focused on organizational design, teamwork, management, structure over bureaucracy, 
all these things intrigued me. And the books I was reading told me, yes, there is a better way of doing things. They just didn't tell you how to do it. Uh, so I just kept searching. I, uh, I've got this, um, I guess, maybe a personality trait where I'll search even though I don't know what I'm looking for. And I'm convinced that once I see it, I will know it when I see it. And in 1999, that happened. I'd been a VP for a couple of years. So I'd risen to the, kind of the top ranks of a high-flying public corporation, still experiencing that trough of disillusionment that, uh, that had been carrying me since my 30s. And I had a click moment. And suddenly all became clear. I transformed that public company to something that looks like my company does today. And over the next two years, got back to the joy that I talk about now, that joy of the youthful energy I had when I started in the profession. It was what, it was what I was looking for. It was what I was hoping for when I started in this career. And it was sustainable. And so in 2001, though, all of that was taken away, all the worldly stuff, the, the job, the title, the authority, the stock options, what they couldn't take away was what I learned in those two years. And in 2001, my co-founder and I took those learnings and we started Men Motivations. What a great way to, you know, come back to the roots. And I think what you've touched on is so true for so many people who are completely disillusioned with their jobs and their careers and the companies that they work for. It's so it's I think it's a human tragedy because mm -hmm. I, I often say we're not born to be miserable. <laughs> you have to like find that yourself, you know, and that joy comes from within yourself. So I think uh, you really kind of tapped into that journey and, and were able to maybe do the self-actualization or whatever you want to call it, but really kind of integrate that into creating what you did. So tell me what has had the biggest impact in your life? What would you say that would be? You know, every once in a while, you know, and again, of course, I talk about my career like it was 100% misery. And of course it wasn't. Uh, there were, there were bright moments. There were bright spots where I could see a little bit of clearing in the fog and say, okay, that's it. But it just wasn't sustainable. And I am sure that a lot of people like me who escaped that um, had people in their lives that helped along the way. And I certainly did. Uh, I think of one uh, person in particular at my kind of deepest, darkest moments. Uh, Bob Nero was the CEO of Interface Systems, that public company I'd worked for. And he came in really late in the game. Uh, I had already been with the company for about 15 years by the time he was uh, brought in as a new CEO. And he must have seen something in me because he kept coaching me, prodding me, encouraging me, and so on, even though I, was, I wasn't very reachable at that point. But ultimately, he broke through, and I listened, and, uh, and I responded. And at the point I started making big changes, when suddenly my excited, youthful energy came back again, Bob put his gentle hand on my shoulder and he said, Rich, you're doing the right thing. Even if it's hard, keep going. I've got you covered. And that was really important to me. I'm not sure I would be who I am today were it not for Bob's influence in my life. Isn't that interesting how one little statement like that can have such a big impact? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think everyone has had some sort of a, 
impact from somebody like that. But thank you for sharing. That's a beautiful story. I, I understand your other title there is a chief storyteller. <laughs> so you're good at that, right? <laughs> I get a lot of practice. So I love, I love that you focused in on the word joy. And I'm just kind of curious because I find sometimes resistance to that because I am, you know, chief joy bringer and, um, you know, kind of the technical left-brained analytical people, they think it's too warm and fluffy or whatever, you know, where did you tap into that? And, and then you also talk about, you know, being intentional about restoring joy. So talk to me about that. Yeah, joy has... <clears throat> kind of always been on the edges of what I've been pursuing. Uh, I never thought about it uh, explicitly in the earliest years of Menlo, uh, even though it was sitting there in our mission statement right from the beginning, uh, but never called it out, never focused on it. Probably like you, it, it felt a little too fuzzy and fluffy and would people take me seriously? So didn't talk about it much, but around about 2010, you know, nine or 10 years into Menlo's founding, somebody who'd heard me speak, sent me Simon Sinek's video, Start With Why. And he said, Rich, you do this. You do it so well. And I listened to it and I thought, well, not really. I mean, I get, you know, maybe my enthusiasm came through and you could sense my why, but I never started with why in any talk I gave about Menlo. I would we, you know, we get these thousands of visitors who come see us every year. And I lead a lot of those tours and people would come and I'd say, we're a software design and development firm. That's what we do. We have this unusual way of doing things. Let me show you how we do it. Very seldom would I get to why. And of course, cynics said, go the opposite way. Start with why, talk about your how, maybe get to your why. And so one particular day, I thought I was convicted. When I saw that video, it just you know, it opened my mind. People don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. Start with what you believe. And so this group was coming in and I thought, today I'm gonna to start with why. What am I gonna say though? And I looked at our mission statement and human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. And I thought, that's it, that's our why. I'll start with that. I want anybody who thinks about Menlo to think about the word suffering. Oh no, 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 that's not it. <laughs> And so right at the bottom, almost waiting there for a, like a gift for me, something I had written probably 10 years before, it said our goal since 2001, since our founding, is to return joy to one of the most unique endeavors mankind has ever undertaken, the invention of software. And I truly believe that. And so this group came in and I said, welcome to Menlo. You've come to a place that has very intentionally created a culture focused on the business value of joy. And their looks were like, what? What, what are you talking about? Why, why are you talking about joy? We want to hear about how you do this unique approach to software development. I said, yep, I get it. And then I looked at him and I said, pretend that you're coming here with a software project. You know, maybe you want us to build software for you. I said, we're going to go back and see that room full of people back there that you can hear noisily working away in the room. I said, but pretend for some odd reason, half of that team has joy and the other half doesn't. Which half would you want working on your project? And they said, well, we want the joyful half, of course. I said, why? Why would you care? What difference would it make? And they said, well, they'd be more productive. They'd care more about the outcome. They'd produce higher quality. They'd be easier to work with. I said, awesome. So you're with me. There is, in fact, tangible business value to joy. 
And I said, now I'm going to go show you how we do what we do. And you can stop me anywhere and ask me, Rich, could you draw a line back to joy? And I will be able to draw a short, straight line back to joy. And at that point, I'll be honest, it changed everything. Uh, I was now getting keynote speaker jobs all over the world. I was asked to write books on the subject. And, uh, you know, it has changed my life for sure. Uh, and it made it so clear why we exist, what we believe, what, what we're pursuing. And, uh, and so it's been a delightful journey. And, you know, and it, it's been there for the 20 years of Menlo. The joy came back from me. My kids are now convinced I will never retire. <laughs> but isn't that true for anyone who loves their work, right? Um, and that's such a great way to actually connect that. Because that's something I, you know, think about quite a bit. Like, how do we measure joy? I haven't really gotten my hands on it either. So you've you've said it so eloquently there. And, uh, you know, one of the things I love about the Amazing Leader Series is that we actually talk to people who walk the talk and they're actually doing it in their companies. So it's great to hear how you've made it tangible and you actually can communicate it in such a clear way that people get it. Like, yeah, of course. Um, I've interviewed uh, Paul Zak and he had three words. And this is why I like, I reached out to him. I said, I have to interview you. Cause he said, joy equals um, trust plus purpose. <laughs> and it was like, you, you've gotten it down to three words exactly, you know, and, and making it tangible. And I think we're heading towards the point where we will be able to measure it in some way, but um, you know, that's a, just an excellent uh, explanation of, of how you are actually living living proof of, of how that works as a strategy, basically. So what is it that, you know, what would you say motivates you or drives you the most as an individual and as a CEO for your company? You know, when people pressed me early on about where does the joy come from for me, I thought back to those early technological, you know, uh, mind-blowing experiences where suddenly I could do something nobody else around me could do. And I thought that might be it. But I had to dig back a little further. I had to go back to an earlier version of me uh, to really give me my sense of where does my joy come from? And I believe the joy for most of us. And it was a story of... Uh, me and my mom and my dad, uh, I was home alone one night. They had gone out to dinner and a movie, and mom had bought the equivalent of an Ikea bookshelf. And it was out in the garage in a box, and I knew exactly where she wanted it. And buying a new piece of furniture back in those days was kind of a big deal. And so I went out in the garage, and I built that shelf. It was probably 50 pieces of wood. It was six feet tall, eight feet wide, and I was so proud of myself. And then I realized, ah. Oh, I built it in the garage and mom wants it in the living room. Oh. <laughs> so over the next hour, I inched that thing out the front of the garage, down the sidewalk, through the family room, the utility room, the kitchen, got it right where mom wanted it in the living room, set up dad's books, mom's knickknacks, wired up the stereo. And when they came home, I had mom's favorite album playing and she cried. And right there, joy. And this is my belief about joy. Joy is serving others. Joy is bringing delight to the people you intend to serve. And this is the purpose-driven part of joy, I believe. And it can be answered in two easy questions to ask, and not necessarily as easy to answer as you'd think. Who do you serve and what would delight look like for them? And when I focus all of my attention on that, realizing that the joy we derive at Menlo is externally focused in the service to others, that's where we get to joy.
Wow. That's beautiful. Beautifully said. Do you, um, do you kind of follow the servant leadership type of model or is, are you just creating it on your own and it's very aligned to that? You know, we draw from so many different sources, as I'm sure you know, because of all the people you get to interview. Uh, there is no one book. There is no one way to this. Uh, each of us should craft our own way. It's probably as unique as our own DNA. Uh, and so we certainly look to servant leadership. We don't even have a hierarchical model of management within the company. Uh, when we interview people, we interview them in groups because we work in pairs. We interview people in pairs, two candidates, and we tell one candidate, your job is to help the person sitting next to you, who's likely competing for the same position you are, help them get a second interview, make your partner look good. So right off the bat, in the moment of first contact, we are teaching that your job is like that rule in improv theater. When you step onto the stage of Menlo, your job is to be the least important person here. Your job is to help everyone around you succeed. What a great way to ingrain collaboration into the DNA as well. So do you, do you guys talk a lot about culture and trust? Is that, you know, words that you were talking about? It's just, it's already in there. So you don't even have to like discuss it because it's ingrained. No, we, we do talk about this. And I think the reason that my title is chief storyteller is because I believe that the way you communicate these kind of ethereal subjects, right? You know, you can say trust. Do you really know what that means? You can say authenticity. And I think we all have a really good sense of smell for authenticity but it is in the stories that people can connect the concept to the reality, you know, heart to mind and body to spirit. And so we share stories of trust, of collaboration, of teamwork, of overcoming big obstacles. And boy, the last year we've got stories galore. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> I, I often say, you know, culture is kind of the glue that holds the company together. Um, and just because, you know, if, if they're working with it deliberately, it, it, they're aware of it. And so they're, they're kind of maintaining it. And, and you actually have talked about, I've seen in, in some of your materials and things that you talk about, um, in, what is it, intentional culture versus default culture. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. A lot of people, obviously, they come and visit. They want to hear about our culture. And they, they almost arrive as if uh, they have this blank in their organization called culture, and they're trying to fill it in. And I assure them, no, every company has a culture. Unfortunately, many, maybe even most, have what I call a default culture. Who did we hire? What behaviors do we tolerate? What attitudes walked in the door today? And those cultures can often work really well for a long time until one day they stop working and nobody knows why. And they're likely a hero-based culture. And when the hero departs or something happens to the hero, maybe they just get moved to another position, everything follows the hero and the culture collapses because it was never intentional. It was never spoken to. You know, culture is not a poster on the wall. Culture is not a once a year rah-rah speech. If you have an intentional culture, and I will just say in our world, an intentionally joyful culture, it should be present in every part of your organizational behavior. It should be present in all of your processes, your practices. 
and it should certainly be present in everything that is the traditional HR practices of recruiting, interviewing, selecting, onboarding, promoting, and firing. All of that should include your cultural intentions. It should be clear at every juncture because I don't think you get to an intentional culture uh, by having a, a monthly lunch and learn on joy. Yeah. There, there has to be an explicit set of actions and, you know, reflections. I mean, we're all human at Menlo. We're all <laughs> regular people. Um, and we have good days and we have bad days. The question is, when something goes wrong, when there is some interpersonal issue, because I think culture is literally, this is the way my co-founder describes it, the sum of all the relationships in the company. That's your culture. The sum of all the relationships. I like that. So how, and this is a question that's coming to mind, because if someone is listening to you, they'll be like, okay, that sounds really good for you, Rich. You've done it. But how? How do we actually ingrain this into the different processes of, you know, hiring or looking for talent or firing somebody? How do you do joy of firing, you know? Well, what I tell the team regularly about firing is if it ever becomes easy, we will have lost our soul. It should never be easy. These are going to be challenging conversations as much as possible. They shouldn't be a surprise, even though typically the day you decide to share the news with the person, it's still hard. It's still a surprise. And then I encourage our team at the moment of point where we release someone, let's stop thinking about them as a colleague or an employee of the company. Let's start thinking about them as a human being. Let's start thinking about what do they need next to move forward in their lives. Because just because it didn't work out at Menlo doesn't mean, you know, they're, they're somehow unemployable. Uh, you know, they just probably need a different place to work than, than our place. And so we can help them do that. We know a lot of people. We can provide as much uh, support as, as they're willing to accept. And, and do you find, since we're on that topic, just that people that have left the company that they become, you know, kind of your, um, I don't want to call it, what, what's a good word for this, like ambassadors, or I mean, they, they talk highly about the company because of the way they were handled as they were leaving. Yeah, in, in universally, no. Uh, you know, the truth is there are some people who um, think that they should have stayed. And, uh, and I get that, you know, that's, that's a normal, natural human reaction, nothing wrong with them, nothing wrong with us. Uh, yet we see so many examples where, um, you know, I, I remember one where we let a guy go and within weeks he called me and he said, Hey, Rich, just want to let you know, I found a new job. And I thought, wow, what a nice thing for him to do to call me up and, you know, kind of relieve me that he's okay. And he said, no, no, that's not why I'm calling. I want to make, bring my boss in to, to meet you because I think we might have a software project that Menlo could help us with. And I thought, wow, yeah. we must have handled that pretty well. If, you know, just within weeks, he wants to introduce his new boss to the person who fired him uh, just a few weeks before. And so uh, again, we, uh, the simple terms I use in those situations is, let's try as hard as we can to handle this with dignity and respect that another human being deserves. 
just human to human. It's caring. It's about connecting to people and treating them like you want to be treated, right? I mean, it's sometimes so simple that we forget yeah. or we make it too complicated. And, you know, and sometimes it's useful to look at what would the opposite look like? Because there's so many examples of it. And the one that I'm just struck by is the companies that as soon as they make this decision to sever a relationship, they'll pull the person aside, close the door, and then they'll basically have security guards at their cube with cardboard boxes and they'll carefully watch this person putting all the things in their boxes and then they'll pull their badge off march them out to the front door listen to a click behind them won't even wave goodbye won't say goodbye it's like wow i mean already you're taking their job away are you trying to actually crush their spirit as a human being why do you do this and you know and and Sometimes they'll do this when people quit too. And I remember challenging one big, uh, you know, large company in the region here about this practice. And I said, <laughs> I said, do you only hire stupid people? And they're like, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, if people are quitting, I, do you think they, they knew two weeks ago they were quitting? Do you think they might have stolen the things you were worried about them stealing before they actually told you because they've seen this behavior before? And they're like, well, you know, that's the corporate policy. I said, well, your corporate policy sucks. Change it. Thank right? you. Yes. <laughs> you know, treat people like you want to be treated. Exactly. Are, you know, I mean, it, it, I don't know. It just, it just stuns me as to how we objectify people in those situations. And, and, uh, and we don't need to do that. I, I do feel the trends are changing that, and especially, especially after last year, because I just saw some research recently from McKinsey that showed like how leadership has changed in this last year because of the pandemic for 2020. And it's just, um, you know, caring and connection and building a culture of trust and having psychological safety there has all risen to the top. So I do think we're shifting in some way, and I don't think we're going to shift back. But um, I'm, I'm curious because, you know, it's affected everybody. How, how have you guys managed through this, you know, lovely year of 2020 we've all gone through? <laughs> well, you know, Menlo is a company that for 19 of our 20 years, principles and practices were married together, almost inseparable. And I probably looked at it as if they were inseparable. Uh, you know, we work in a big open room together. We work two to a computer. The pairs are assigned. We switch them every five working days. So everybody's getting to build a relationship with everyone else in the team. We have daily stand-up meetings where we hold this two-horned plastic Viking helmet to report out. That's our talking stick. Um, you probably appreciate Viking helmets in particular. Of course. <laughs> picked up on that Although, yep <laughs> you know i hear that the real viking helmets actually didn't have horns but you know that's that's like storytelling it doesn't have to be 100 accurate to be clever um and so that was probably the worst possible environment for contagion right mm. people mm. sitting in close proximity sharing a keyboard and a mouse talking to each other so the week of march 16th was like a like a fire drill is get out of the building, get out as quick as you can, take as much as you think you need. If you left something behind, we'll bring it to you, but go home, set up a home office, be safe, we'll figure it out. And I panicked. I thought, oh my gosh, we've just pulled apart the very fabric of Menlo. What's going to happen? 
And very quickly, I learned that when you build that strong foundation of intentionally joyful culture, your building that sits on top of that can stand. And so what I learned was that while the principles and practices were pulled apart, the principles remain teamwork, collaboration, trust, relationships with one another, empathy for each other, caring for each other. Uh, you know, the, um, the human energy of our team was preserved. And I watched our team adapt way faster than I did. I don't know if maybe I'm just too old for this stuff, but there was at least a day uh, that I frightened my co-founder early on in the pandemic where I uttered the word retirement a couple of times because for me, this was, it was like becoming a startup again. And I thought, am I, do I really want to do that? I mean, that's really hard. And, uh, but within a few weeks of watching my team adapt, I thought, hey, this is exciting. Yeah, you've got to learn new ways of working again. And we did. And so uh, you know, we set up this five-step plan to get back to what we call thriving again. And it was survive, because there was a big economic hit. It was adapt, because we were going to do a whole new way of working. Get back to sustain, which means just steady the ship so you know, we could pretty much predict week in and week out. Emerge stronger, that's the most important part of this is I watched our team simply get stronger over time with very explicit actions on their part. And those four would lead to thriving again and we're right on the beginning stage of that. We're starting to hire again. We're as busy as can be. It looks like our revenues will get back to a very wonderful place uh, this year. They weren't there last year. It was a tough economic year. Our customers all pulled back because uh, they were worried about what was going to happen to their business. So it was batting down the hatches. Fortunately, we had had the best year of our of our history the year before. So we had a fair amount of cash in the bank, which allowed us to uh, not panic uh, and, and take some very concerted actions to make sure we preserved as much of that cash as possible. How fortunate for you guys. And also what a beautiful um, five-step process to go through such uncertainty. I really, really appreciate and value that. It's um, very simple and clear and like obvious steps. So well done on that, you know, coming well, up with something that you can make tangible for everyone. I think that'll give people a lot of value as well. Just, you know, handling uncertainty. I mean, a lot of us are moving along, but to define it in those really clear five steps is really beautiful. I, I'm curious because I, I do talk to a lot of CEOs and, and, you know, a lot of CEOs are listening to this. So what would you say are some of the, you know, biggest challenges that CEOs are facing today? And, and you know, what would you give for advice as to, you know, how they could maybe best manage things? Yeah, this is a very complex time we live in, regardless of pandemic. I think that just <clears throat> increased the complexity <laughs> a little bit. Um, but, you know, the, the, it's a complex world we live in. It's interconnected. Uh, it's uh, technologically speaking, it's complex. Uh, com competition is everywhere. <laughs> um, and uh, obviously in all of that is great opportunity, but ultimately in order to deal with the complexity we're dealing with now, one clear signal emerges, teamwork. We cannot, there, there is no longer a space for individual heroes in business. We need teams 
to work together. Now, how do you get to teamwork? Uh, teamwork is people spending time together. Teamwork is relationships. Teamwork is trust. And if we're going to get to trust, I don't know any other way for humans to develop trust. Because it isn't like I can say, okay, team, I just need you all trust one another. You know, it's like, really? Like, you think you can wave your hands and create trust? No, it, trust, is, uh, trust is one of those things. You know, we guard ourselves. We guard our hearts. We guard our spirits. We're not going to just simply trust because someone tells us to. We're going to trust because we have spent time with other people. We have had a chance to build relationships with them. And when those things begin to emerge, you'll get trust. And if you get that kind of trust, then eventually you will get teamwork. And so this is one of the challenges, especially in the pandemic, because now what have we done? We've, we've basically almost mandated, let's not spend time together because that's dangerous. And so loneliness and isolation, I think this year are the, are the, the biggest challenges to the human part of our organizations, which for most of us is our organizations. You know, it's, and so I think, you know, and, and I will, point out the kind of work you are doing uh, conforms to one of the most popular quotes I've ever used in my talks. And it's by John Naisbitt, who wrote it in 1982. And he said, the greatest advancements in the 21st century, I remember he was writing this 30 years, 40 years ago now. And I think it's truer today than it's ever been. The greatest advancements that are going to occur in the 21st century are not going to occur because of technology but because of a greater understanding of what it means to be human. Mm. And humans, if we really boil it down and, you know, let's just, let's take AI just for a second, because everybody's worried about AI, right? It's going to take over. We're not going to have our jobs anymore. I will assure you there are four things, four very human things that AI will never take over creativity, imagination, innovation, and invention. Now, where do those come from? They come from that very most human part of our brain, the part of our brain that shuts down when we are afraid. And so this talk about psychological safety is critical these days. I learned to manage I was managed with fear and I learned to manage by motivating people with fear. I thought that worked because they thought it worked. I, my training ground was the people who managed me with fear. It doesn't work. It's never worked, mm. but it's critical now for CEOs to consider that we must take fear off of the table. I tell my team, my biggest job as CEO is to pump fear out of the room. It can come from our clients, it can come from each other, and admittedly, it can come from me. I am still, 20 years in, I'm still unlearning my old bad habits. And fortunately, I have a small subset of the total Menlo team who has no problem calling me on the carpet when I do it wrong. And, uh, and I need to listen when that happens because I know that fear-mongering manager is still hiding inside of me. But we need to learn to keep fear at bay. 
and I actually draw this simple model of a human organization related to an airplane that um, the forces that work on a human organization are very similar to the forces that work on an aircraft. The lift of human energy, the weight of bureaucracy, the thrust of purpose, and the drag of fear. And if we want to get our corporate aircraft off the ground every day, we better increase the human energy. We better increase the purpose, the understanding of our purpose, decrease the bureaucracy, and decrease the fear. We'll never get rid of all of it, but we don't need to get rid of all of it. We just need the balance of those to be in favor of human energy and purpose and not in favor of bureaucracy and fear. And if we do that every single day, our corporate aircraft will get off the ground reliably and fly to heights and distances that were previously unimaginable. I love that. <laughs> I often say, you know, you, for every negative thing, you need to balance it out with about five positive things because they just, they weigh more. And so, you know, we kind of don't see it or we, we focus in some, and we're conditioned through our, our upbringing, our cultures, whatever, to focus in on the negative. So we need to unlearn and relearn. I, I do see a lot of that going on. So, um, Thank yeah, you for your Jim, humility of being, you know, honest about this as a person as well, because, you know, nobody is perfect. And uh, we're all on, on some sort of a growth path as well. Absolutely. And, you know, it's been a 20-year journey for me. Uh, fortunately, I have a peer partner, I have a couple of them. Uh, my wife uh, works at Menlo as well. And she is one of those people who will <laughs> call you out <laughs> uh, without fear. Uh, and my co-founder, James, has just been critical in this for me. It's interesting that you've written books and now do a lot of speaking as well. It seems like it's almost like, um, had you planned on that in your life or is something that just kind of came and, and you said, I need to share what we've discovered and learned here? You know, in my early days of programming, uh, I got, I was very fortunate to have gotten a job as a programmer before I could even drive a car. And again, influence of people in my life. Um, the two guys that hired me to work at what was called the Macomb Intermediate School District, which is a service center to all the county schools in our, in where I grew up. Um, they were both very accomplished public speakers and we were doing things that had never been done before applying computing and education back in the seventies. And here I was this like 17 year old kid doing this crazy stuff while I'm still in high school and hitchhiking down the road to do my job. And they eventually started bringing me out into the world and saying, Hey, Rich, tell the story of what we're doing. And, and fortunately, because they were such accomplished public speakers, they, they taught me how to do it well. And I found I just loved it. I'm probably one of those weird one percenters, you know, that would, you know, most people would rather die than do public speaking. I, I consider it just a strong part of my life. I, I love the energy I get from a crowd. Uh, I, I love spreading new ideas and creating new relationships with the talks I give, meeting new people, exchanging ideas. For me, that's what public speaking is all about. So often when I go to conferences, people notice, wow, you're not like most of these keynotes that like fly in, step on the stage and then fly out. You actually stay for the whole conference. I'm like, of course, you guys are talking about interesting things. I want to meet you. I want to learn from you. I want to understand what other things you're talking about because I need to grow too. Hmm. That's great. I love that. So as we start to wrap up here, um, is there any like one piece of advice you could give to leaders and managers that could make, help them make a difference? Well, <laughs> this, is the, this is the hard part. 
it is a, um, uh, let's talk about where to begin. And the place to begin is very easy to identify and hard to acknowledge. I had to become a different kind of leader. The change had to start here. It had to start inside of me. And I remember the moment it began. Uh, it was when I had brought my eight-year-old daughter to work with me one day, kind of a take your child to work day moment in the local schools. And she sat and watched her newly minted VP dad do his work all day. And, you know, can you imagine a more boring day for an eight-year-old than to watch a VP work? <laughs> my dad does email all day. I can't wait to get into the work world whatever. <laughs> so she wisely brought crayon stickers and coloring books and just sat at my task table and worked all day. But at the end of the day, I thought, well, her teacher's going to ask tomorrow. So I better ask now, Sarah, what did you see today? What did you learn? Well, this was the moment of change. She said, what I saw, dad, is you're really important here. I said, what? She said, what I saw is nobody here can make a decision without asking you first. Eight-year-old convicted. Now she was very proud. I was instantly mortified. In that moment, I realized I'd created a hero-based organization and I was the number one hero. And the only way to scale a hero-based organization is to scale the heroes. The only way to scale the heroes is over time. And I'm looking across the table at this eight-year-old realizing I am about to miss the best part of being a dad. And I didn't want that. So I had to come up with significant change in how I led others. I couldn't be answer man anymore. I had to build the capacity in the people around me and let them carry it forward. I had to become the least important person on the stage and help others succeed. And that's a hard place to begin because most of us who rose up into leadership positions were selected because we drowned out the voice of others in the room. And we need to stop doing that as leaders. Wow. Just turn everything right upside down. <laughs> I think, you know, I think the whole MBA, whatever business learnings needs to have a massive revolution because we, we're, we're shifting as humanity and we're really looking at how can we really take care of each other and how can we lift each other up? And you've just kind of summed that up so beautifully there. So thank you for that. And think about how many organizations, and let's say there's 52 weeks a year, five days a week. So it's 260 working days. How many places, and I think this is you know, a message for your CEOs and the audience. Does your organization, 259 of those days, speak to teamwork, 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 and one day? The day that the employee steps into the office, the door closes behind them, the boss sits down with them to give their performance review, and the entire discussion is about individual achievement. Mm -hmm. How do you compare to others? You know, the horrible version of let's force rank all of our employees. Mm -hmm. And you realize, oh, I get it. That teamwork thing, that's just BS. The moment of truth, the rubber meets the road here where it's all about how did I perform relative to my peers? That's not teamwork. That's, that's I don't have to outrun the tiger. I just have to outrun my peers. And mm -hmm. if I do, they're all left behind to get eaten alive by the tiger. 
and I get the big reward. I get the big raise. I get the big title. I get the bigger office. And we've got to take a look at how we recognize performance in a team-based environment, which says, how did the team perform? Do people around you, are you elevating them? Are you getting more performance simply by your presence there? And so, again, I think we have to look at all of our traditional HR practices in order to figure out how do we get to that thing we want that we talk about uh, in the rah-rah speeches once a year. Hmm. Very well said. So, um, I mean, we could talk for hours about this kind of stuff and keep going. I, and, and if anybody, I mean, who's listened now is interested in learning more about your work, where's the best place to send them? I, I know you have a yeah, uh, they can go to our website, um, Menlo, M-E-N-L-O, innovations.com. And here's the neat thing. We've been doing these tours for our 20 years of existence. People get on airplanes, come from all over the world to visit us in downtown Ann Arbor, spend anywhere from a day to a week with us. And of course, all that had to end. I mean, there's nothing to come see right now. We're all working. At- <laughs> yeah. And we started offering last June. This is one of those Emerge Stronger moments. We started offering virtual tours. And oh my goodness, we have had a couple hundred of them since June. Uh, We've had 1,300 people come from all over the world, 49 countries, 34 states. Uh, It is unreal. So the simple thing is, and they're free, 90 minutes, you can come and you can come visit. So just click on tours on the beginning of our, on our front page of a website and come visit us. I love that. You know, I find amazing companies and amazing leaders are so open and giving and really wanting to just share because, you know, they've stumbled onto or discovered in some way what's actually working. And that's just very generous. So thank you. So MenloInnovations.com is a place for people to go. Um, Thank you so much, Rich. You have been an amazing guest. I'm thrilled to uh, have this opportunity to be able to learn and talk to you. And um, I'm looking forward to us staying connected and following your journey. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.